Hello and welcome to Six Nations Rewind, a podcast where we look back at some of the great Six Nations encounters of yesteryear. With the 2022 tournament fast approaching, we'll be delving into the archives and picking out two classic encounters from each of the three first round matches and debating which one was best. I've got Nick alongside me and Kit. They'll both be picking a game each, and it's up to them to persuade Alec which game is the better of the two. So we'll start with Scotland against England, the big game this weekend, and we'll kick off the series with a classic Calcutta Cup contest in the inaugural Six Nations way back in the year 2000. It ended in dramatic fashion as underdog Scotland defeated England 19-13, denying them both the Grand Slam and the Triple Crown in the pouring rain at Murrayfield. chosen this one well to be honest I, I don't think there could be any other um particularly when looking at the six nations scotland hadn't been in england uh for 10 years before this game in the tournament and they wouldn't beat them for another six it would be their only win against england over that 16 year period and just the circumstances of it scotland had not won a single game england had won every single one of their games that has not happened since their team has won uh, all of their games has lost to a team that has uh, lost all of their games. And and that obviously happened in the first competition. And although it wasn't a classic in terms of the rugby played, I think we can forgive both teams given how dreadful the conditions were on the day, which for me added to the kind of pathetic fallacy of what it was for England to lose that game, arguably the most painful Grand Slam being snatched away from any team ever. And what it meant for Scottish rugby, what a massively important result that was. It wasn't as if they kicked on and, and stole the world after that. But had they lost that game to have been whitewashed completely in the very first Six Nations Championship, it could have had pretty damaging effects um, for, for their rugby in the long run. And yeah, I, for me, it's just a classic game of the underdog, you know, beating the, the, the team that strides into town, coached by Clive Woodward, who well, every other nation seems to think was probably the most arrogant man to have led any team in any Six Nations ever. And yeah, just an iconic, iconic win for Scottish rugby. And other than uh, France, who England did beat, England had beaten all, all the other sides pretty comfortably. So it was, it was quite a shock. By a considerable margin. And England had scored 20 tries in the competition, um, which I'm not sure whether that was a, a then record, but it was certainly a mark of just how good they were and how comfortable they were attacking obviously the conditions played a very beneficial part for scotland um but that i think just made the occasion it made it made the defeat more painful to take for england 
that they had to do it in such in such miserable conditions and it probably made the occasion all the more iconic to see those players sliding through you know a Murrayfield pitch that's basically surface water on it um it for me is a game that obviously I was too young to remember but I look back on it and uh, having watched highlights of it multiple times well quite painfully as an English fan but I certainly think if I was Scottish I'd have better memories of it do you think that there was a big home advantage at playing at Murrayfield. Did the crowd really get behind? Yeah, Murray, Murrayfield's one of those uh, one of those grounds which, you know, like a few Premier League football stadiums, can be can be really beneficial when you're doing well and really really tough to play in when Scotland aren't doing so well. Um, but on that occasion, despite Scotland heading into that game in such, I mean, you know, arguably their worst championship up to that point, they have had a few whitewashes since. Um, but to be so convincingly beaten by the new boys, Italy. And to not really get close to anyone else in that competition, you know, Ireland and Wales were were not, were not world beaters at that point. Um, no one could, for, you know, people could forgive them losing to France. But England came into that game having having swatted aside everything in their way, and the Scottish fans just got behind their team, sensed that there was an opportunity with the rain, sensed that England were a touch vulnerable because they'd lost the Grand Slam in similar circumstances the year before and would lose it again the year after. And, um, yeah, got behind their team. And, yeah, I think a lot is made of the Welsh home crowd. Um, but I certainly think uh, Scotland, Ireland and England have their days where their home crowd really, really gets behind them. And that was definitely one for Scotland. And, and was it a bad performance particularly from England or was it just the, the, the conditions levelled the match? Well, I mean... Clive Woodward, obviously, um, in the interview after, said that they were atrocious in the first half. But he was even able to acknowledge just how well Scotland had played. And uh, having read his autobiography and having heard him interviewed after games in the past, that's not a very common occurrence. Um, and Scotland did turn up and produced that, that, that brilliant performance. It's always said that every other team in the competition wants to be England the most. And that was a perfect example of a team that had really un underperformed coming up and putting in a fantastic performance on the day. Well, that's your, uh, your time up, Nick, explaining that one. Kit's going to put forward his argument now, and you've chosen probably one of the greatest matches, not only in Six Nations history, Kit, but one of the greatest matches in the sport of rugby. We're, of course, talking about the 38-all draw between England and Scotland in 2019. That time, there was a bit of an issue. Oh, he's story let me just set the scene for you so scotland hadn't won at twickenham for 36 years um when they came to london in 2019 they hadn't won a game or tournament except against italy which um isn't much for a win these days and england apart from one particularly bad half against wales that year it actually had a, a really good campaign so anything but an england a comfortable england win was kind of out of the question on that saturday evening um but really the reason this game's brilliant is just for the pure entertainment of it. England went 31-0 up, almost as expected. They were cruising. And then Scotland came back um, with a slightly depleted squad at the end of a disappointing campaign, as I say. They scored 38 unanswered points to go ahead of less than five minutes to play. 
they played some great rugby, some great solo tries, tries from their own half. Um, and Sam Johnson's brilliant effort appeared to have won them the match. But England did come back in the last play of the game, snatch a draw, um, a familiar glorious failure for Scotland. But 76 points, 12 tries, 31-point comeback. What more could you want? And um, if I just may just pick up on a couple of things Nick said. I mean, I know Scotland had had a tough campaign, but they were champions the previous year. So um, they can't have been that terrible a team. England have had at least equally as painful Grand Slam losses. Um, 2001 wasn't great. 2013 in Cardiff was particularly terrible for the England faithful among us. And just rugby in that weather is just not as exciting. Um, might be better for Scotland, might be a leveller, maybe upset kind of less, um, or maybe upset more likely, but I'd prefer rugby, um, which results in 76 points. So it sounds like your game kit is, is the better game to watch, the better spectacle. But I think, well, my main question is, did it mean anything? Did it have any consequences? I think it did, because that 36-year wait went on, uh, 36 years without a Scotland win at Twickenham. But in their next game, two years later, they they won at Twickenham, breaking what was a 38-year wait by that stage. And I feel that comeback in the, in the second half, mainly it was in 2019, um, was so unlikely and so symbolic. It showed, it proved to Scotland that that they can go to places like Twickenham and take teams on, remove a little bit of that inferiority complex which Scottish sport often has. And although they didn't get over the line that time, it 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 really showed them the way and was a real building block. For some of their good victories they've had in recent years. So, a question to both of you then: Why didn't you pick that game the the year after where Scotland did win at Twickenham? Uh, two years after Kit's example. Two years after. Yeah, yeah well, <clears throat> uh, I think for the same reason that I didn't pick the 38-all draw, which is, although on the day it was an iconic Scottish performance, in terms of what it meant, I think in the long run it possibly wasn't. Um, I think the, the game itself, 2021, uh, sorry, yeah, 2021, was quite a, was quite a poor match. And although... Um, the game, you could argue, in 2000 was was not the most brilliant exhibition in terms of what was on the line and the fact that it was the final round and the fact that it was a shattering day for England. And I do think Kit was right that there were examples around that where England had similarly uh, painful losses. But I think that one, just because when they turned up to Ireland the year, there was always a risk that they would lose to Wales the year before. And when they turned up to Ireland a year later, Again, it had been the game had been delayed by a few months, and there was there was always a chance. When they turned up to Scotland that day, no one gave Scotland a chance. I mean, we are he's right that they won the championship the year before, but as I say, they hadn't been in England for 10 years. And the year that they'd had leading up to that, particularly if you include the Italy loss, which you cannot underestimate um, how how bad that was as a result for them. Um, I just feel that that from a Scottish point of view, was a was a, a bigger win to savour, particularly given the fact that, as we were speaking about earlier, there were fans, which they obviously weren't in Twickenham. Come on, Alec, which game are you, you opting for? If you had to go see one of them, would you prefer to sit and watch? Well, as an Englishman, it, uh, I'm not sure I'd like to watch <laughs> true. England lose at Murrayfield in the driving rain. I think that, that seems like the... Obviously, the 38-38 is the more dramatic game, and I think nobody would have expected Scotland to have come back from 31 nil down 
So I think I'm going to have to go with Kit here on this one. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I didn't I didn't think it was gonna be easy, but I also I, I, I stand by I stand by my I stand by my feelings on it. But uh yeah, I mean it's probably because it was on my birthday the day all and I'm bitter. I actually remember it, but yeah. No, you're right though, Alec. It's a, a job to pick between them as an Englishman. Tough. Where you come down from a 38 all draw or a 1913 loss. <laughs> but you did well. Kit takes the, the opening opening game there. You can see Scotland opening them for the Colt Cutter Cup this year on Saturday the 5th of February at Murrayfield. Moving on to France against Italy now. And Kit, you're up first for this one. You've gone for the, the last match played at the Stadio Flaminio, pulling on the old heartstrings there in Rome back in 2011, a 22-21 victory for Italy, their first ever victory over France. Bergamasco with possibly the biggest kick of his international career, straight through the middle. The Flaminio is on its feet. Italy lead 22-21 with less than five minutes remaining. The time is up. Italy calling for it from the referee. And there it is. The game is won. Italy with their first ever win over France in the RBS Six Nations. And Nick Mallet is on the pitch. And little wonder, it's the greatest moment in Italian rugby history. Kit, why did you choose this one? I'll start with the Stadio Flaminio just because <laughs> I love it as a Six Nations stadium. I love how it's kind of open at the top. So you can see the background of the fans against the sky. Um, I won't go too much into that because that's not the main reason, though. Um, again, if we're talking about underdog stories, stories, if we're talking about upsets, this is, in my opinion, the greatest upset of the Six Nations era. Italy had never beaten France in the tournament. This was a French team that would, re would come within a point of the World Cup later that year. Uh, so not a bad team. Um, and Italy won 22-21, as you said. It was a great game. Some well-taken tri tries, a fairy tale, 12-point comeback that won it for Italy. And Mirko Bergamasco has lost a pressure penalty from the touchline with under five minutes to play. And trust me, Alec, that doesn't happen very often if you know Bergamasco. <laughs> um, and kind of a little bit of context, it was the start of Italy's brief golden era. They'd beat France again in 2013. They'd beat Scotland a couple of times. Uh, they beat Ireland as well. Um, and those that kind of five years showed um, the progression to merit Italy's inclusion in the tournament. And it all started with that game in 2011. Um, and as we discussed, whether there's still a place for Italy in the tournament, it's important to remember games like that and, and scenes like that at, at the Flaminio as well. Like there was grown men cried that day. It was just a, a fantastic day for Italian rugby. And one that I don't think many people will forget. Uh, were you one of the men crying, Kit? Oh, well, I'm not Italian, but I, I did almost shed a tear because it was, it was it, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it is worth just watching kind of the last five minutes because um, it was such an upset. It was, I think it still is um, Italian rugby's greatest day in terms of an achievement. And as I say, it kind of set them on the way for more special days in the years after. Um, so you say it's Italians... Uh, rugby's greatest upset, but they did beat France by a bigger margin two years later. So why didn't you pick that one? Well, I think the victory in 2011 really kind of, do you want to sound like a broken record, but laid the foundations for the successes in future years. I think it gave them the belief to go on and, and win in 2013 against France. I think um, 
the France team was probably slightly stronger. You could say in 2011, neither of them were, were world-beating sides, I would I think is pretty certain. Um, but this, this this was the first. This was the, There was no precedent for this before. So um, I think it's just a, a much greater upset for that. No one saw it coming, at least in 2013. You could, you could see it coming because it had happened before. You could imagine it. That wasn't the case in 2011. And how good were France that year? Did they merit losing to a, a pretty poor no, Italian side? No. Again, like this, this just didn't. It, it, Italy didn't win games apart from against Scotland in a particularly bad Wales team. If they got lucky at, at this stage, the Six Nations, France w wasn't maybe the golden era of the 1990s, but this was still a, a France team that was good enough to reach the World Cup final that autumn. That lost to a point to New Zealand at home, so they, they can't have been that bad and. It's Italy turned them over on the day. It's just one of the, the great Six Nations stories. Put Italy into context for us, Kit, for those who aren't aware then. People may think if they've only got a handful of victories, why they are in the Six Nations, but they managed to find some good form in the 90s, which therefore then meant they got into the Six Nations. But just put them into context as a nation in the competition. So, yeah, as you say, they were, they were strong in the 90s, beating a few uh, Tier 1 opposition, including some Six Nations teams, and, and dominating um tier two and below so they, it was a logical choice to bring them into the into the five nations as it was to make it the six nations in 2000 and kind of after you'd say about a decade of of not winning much at all apart from that occasional win here, here or there and the kind of first half of the 2010s they had this this good run relatively speaking where they they got all these victories that i say starting with the game in 2011 um and it's important to remember that because since kind of the mid 2010s, they they have gone backwards and they have started losing heavily on a very regular basis. So this game's important just to remind what what Italy can achieve and what the less heralded rugby nations could achieve in the Six Nations. Yeah, so an emphatic win for Italy to start their run, but also for France as well because they had a bit of a decline after this. They did, and um, I'm sure Nick will talk about it a bit when he talks about his game in a second. But this was kind of the end of a of an era for France. They had a lot of elder statesmen in the side. They did, as I say, um, have enough to hold on and, and reach a World Cup final. So they still were a talented team. But um, it came at the start of a decade, I would say, of of underachievement, of indifference to the national side from the French public. Um, and that's something that they're kind of only really getting out of now. Yeah, so a key game in, in both countries, form, both before and and after. Nick, you've opted for the 2016 Six Nations Curtain Razor, a match that really ebbed and flowed throughout with France, coming on to be 23-21 winners. It's time for one chance for Italy, and that'll be it. Oh, it's Parisi. Why did you choose this game back in 2016? Well, yeah, I mean, after hearing that game, you could argue that it's a bit like defending the indefensible uh, with this one. But I don't, I don't accept that. I mean, you okay. know, there's something about France 23, Italy 21 in 2016, which for me is almost like the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> it really was the, the way that this game panned out 
It ebbed and flowed very much like the two games that um, we've already spoken about, that Italy won in 2011 and 2013. With Italy, you know, gaining an advantage in the second half and really looking like they had rattled a French team that was, you know, as has already been mentioned, you know, at the end of what had been a pretty dire five years. I mean, they would improve a little bit in the coming years after that, but not until 2020 did they really get their act together. You know, in front of a, what was, I think, almost entirely empty top tier of the Stade de France. Um, and, and, and it really was set up for an Italian win. But in a, a period of a basically crazy five or six minutes um, from the man that has always been in the middle uh, for them, Sergio Parise, first giving away a penalty, which, you know, for a professional like him, wriggling along on the floor, trying to gain extra yards, um, was was pretty lacklustre. And then taking on this drop goal from 40 yards out, which had it gone over, who knows whether that would have been, a, you know, a stim would have stimulated Italy onto, onto more victories in the period of leading up to the 2019 World Cup. Uh, but it didn't. It fell short. And for me, that full-time whistle, watching those Italian players collapse, in particular Parise, who was you know, the possibly Julius Caesar of that uh, <laughs> Roman Empire. Um, watching every, watching him fall to his knees after that game, it, it, it was a symbol of what was, you know, not just the beginning of the end, but the end of Italy being a competitive force in the Six Nations. And, you know, that might be quite sad and people might not view that as one of the best games because everyone's got behind Italy and they've loved watching Italy do well. Um, but I also think the symbolism of it it has ended up proving to be potentially the most consequential and important France-Italy game. And actually, you know, what I have on my side, which I definitely didn't have last time out, is the fact that the game of rugby itself was, was a fantastic game. The way it ebbed and flowed, some of the tries, some of the opportunities created. You had two teams who both weren't in a great place playing pretty decent rugby. And uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, the beginning of, well, as I say, the, the end of the end of, of a great era for Italy. It feels like a game that the way you're describing it, that there was no winners, that both teams sort of lost in a way because France weren't happy with being pushed that far by Italy. Obviously, Italy weren't happy by losing just in, you know, from a penalty five minutes from the end. So it feels like a weird game to pick. I, I understand why you've you've picked it. It feels memorable. But why didn't you pick a game that was a, a, a huge France victory? Well, I mean, obviously, Kit literally won with a game that had no winners last time out. So, um, <laughs> but no, I know what you mean. I mean, but in many ways, I think that's a supporting argument. I think, you know, how can you get a game where a team does beat a team and there are no winners? Whereas Italy would have viewed that result five or six years prior as, you know, a fantastic stepping stone. Um, and France would have been you know, very relieved to have got the job done in what would have been at the time as packed outside of France, but it wasn't. But, you know, I think it, 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 it doesn't necessarily have to be that a game is, you know, super dramatic and super positive for both sides for it to be an iconic game. For me, it's iconic in the fact that it's probably quite a depressing game for both teams to remember. But, you know, it was a fantastic game of rugby in and of itself. And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, f for me personally extremely memorable watching that on 
you know, having got late on a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, um, I flicked on the telly and did not expect to see such a high-quality game. And little did I expect it would be the last time that I'd be able to cheer on Italy with them having half a chance of winning a game. Was that their last victory then in the sixth? Well, no, because obviously oh, well, last, yeah. the last time they were truly competitive, I think you can argue. Yeah. They've had a few interesting games since then, but that was the last time where I really do think they were they were super competitive against the side. And France from that point pushed on? Yeah, ish. I mean, you know, certainly they improved in the next couple of years. But I also think, as you say, there were no winners. I don't think France came away from it in in a great space, having a point of Gino there's a lot of positivity as they headed into that game. And that was kind of so yeah, I mean, I think I think um there'd there'd be certain people who would who would view that in very positive terms and, and, f- and find it very interesting. It wasn't one for the purists, but I personally think just in the in the crossroads nature of the game, I just saw it was an iconic game of rugby between those two sides. Well argued, both of you. Alec, the time has come for you to choose again. The power's in your lap. Do you know what? You going for? As Kit was talking, I was thinking this is definitely the match I'm going to go for. A big Italy win, upset at the Stadio Flaminio, the last match. This sounds like a great match to be at, to, to experience the atmosphere there. But I think somehow Nick's won me round, and I don't know how he's done it, but this kind of bitter match where both teams are failing, it's like a Greek tragedy. Um, so I think I'm going to go with Nick on this one. It's almost like you've set out perfectly for one all for the final. <laughs> well, Italy travelled to France <laughs> on Sunday, the 6th of February, at the Stade de France in Paris. Lastly then, in our Six Nations Rewind, both big games between Ireland and Wales. Nick, we'll start with you first. You've gone for Wales' 32-20 victory over Ireland back in 2005, which secured their first Grand Slam in 27 years, a long-awaited triumph for Mike Ruddock's men. Brian O'Driscoll has done a fantastic bit of ripping work there. For me, it's it's like a much more extreme version of what I did in the, what I was talking about in the first first game about Scotland versus England. I mean, the period that Wales had around this, certainly statistically, we can talk about the fact that they won more games in this particular championship than they did in the four championships either side, so the two each either side. Um, and Wales had been, you know, really poor in the Six Nations for a 15-year period that started after their victory in 1993 in the tournament and ended largely until Warren Gatling came in in 2008. Um, 2005, for me, was had the potential to be a very, very poor championship. England were in 
we're now finally kicking off a transition that should have started a year and a half before at the end of the World Cup and uh, were, you know, a pretty poor team. Um, France were similarly in a transition that had just kind of begun um, in 2004. They were a stronger team um, and the game of the championship was obviously there. Uh, Wales is fantastic. I think 43-35 win in Paris, um, which was a, a classic game in, in and of itself. Um, but, you know, it, it needed someone to take the championship by the scruff of the neck. And Wales, I mean, it wasn't like they were written off uh, in this championship. It was like they weren't even... It, it was just not worth talking about them whatsoever. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't a case of... Because, you know, Wales hadn't been worth talking about in the Six Nations for four, 12 years, you know, back when it was the Five Nations. They turned up in this particular game having put together an extraordinary run. But you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was still going to end against Ireland. Wales hadn't beaten Ireland at home for 22 years, which is just an incredible stat, um, given how many times it actually managed to beat them away. Um, and from the opening moments of the game, Wales came out fired up. Um, Gethin Jenkins got an early charge down, which, you know, seeing a prop, you know, do a charge down at any time is, is incredible. But to see it happen in such a crucial game was was fantastic. And Wales just completely overwhelmed Ireland in the Cardiff Sun with huge support behind them. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was a it was just an extraordinary performance. And and I think it would be easy to turn around and say, oh well Wales have actually have actually made a bit of a habit of winning Grand Slams recently. But you've got to remember, 27 years, the only the last time they won it, they had been in such a golden era in the 1970s. And I do believe the catalyst and the confidence that they got from 2005, though it didn't ha help them immediately in the short term, in those other Grand Slams in 08, 12, uh, 12 and 19, I think once they won a few games, that momentum that they've managed to build has come from the confidence that they gained in 2005 as a nation, as a fan base, and ultimately as a squad of players. Talking about the match itself, um, was it a very comfortable victory for Wales? Was it always assured? It, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, once they got the charge down, they did build the scoreboard pretty impressively. Um, and they didn't score as many tries as they had in, in their games against France, Italy or Scotland. Uh, those away wins, but it was the it was the fact that that crowd was so noisy, reflected in the fact that they had had so many awful games to have to sit through in in previous years, um, namely losing their record home defeat to England uh, four years before when Will Greenwood scored a hat trick, losing in the last minute to a Ronan O'Gara drop goal in two thousand three, which they must have thought was going to be their first win against Ireland, and. Um, I'll leave Kit sometimes to talk about his game. But it was, for me, just a, a really a really iconic underdog story once again with a team that played beautiful rugby, which was very rare at that time. And it was sunny in Cardiff as well, which is... I mean, that's that in, in and of itself should win this. <laughs> you just wax, you wax lyrical about the, uh, the Edinburgh rain for the first 12 minutes. Well, yeah, OK, I like string weather. <laughs> what can I say? But no, fantastic for a, a generation of, of Welsh fans. I haven't seen a Grand Slam for 27 years. Kit, for you, another match in which the winner picked up a, a long way to Grand Slam. Ireland's 17-15 victory in 2009 over Wales secured their second Grand Slam, their first since 1948, which is staggering, isn't it? Stringer, O'Gara, back in the pocket for his drop goal 
Right now. So what was it, 27 years since Wales' last Grand Slam of 2005? Mm. Mm. Um, try 61. That's what the Irish fans have been waiting once 2009 rolled around. And it was, it was only, um, they'd only won one Grand Slam before that campaign in 1948. So Ireland and Grand Slams just didn't mix at all, and certainly a lot less than they did for Wales and have done since. Um, so this was a much, much more special occasion uh, for Ireland. Uh, they're playing away at the Millennium Stadium, always a tough place to go. They edged a, re a really tight, close contest, winning by two points. It was 6-0 down at halftime, but it looked like it might be another one of those Grand Slam chances that just slips away. But early second half tries changed the game. O'Driscoll, Brian O'Driscoll getting one, of course. And then a last gasp, Ronan O'Gara drop goal, and then an even later Stephen Jones penalty, which fell short, assures that Ireland would end up the winners and get that Grand Slam. Big names were at the heart of it. I've mentioned O'Driscoll, I've mentioned O'Gara. These are the iconic names of, of Irish rugby from that era, and this was their, their, their crowning moment. So it was a, a, a fitting kind of career-defining day for them. And... As just to reiterate, 61's a lot more than 27. Um, so I think my, my main question is how were Wales performing at that tournament? Was, was it expected that they would lose to Ireland in this manner? Um, they've been, they've won a bad team at all. They'd won the Grand Slam in 2005, which Nick so eloquently talked about. Didn't have a great couple of years after that, but then um, 2008, Warren Gatlin shows up, wins them a Grand Slam. So they, they were Grand Slam champions going into this game, they had uh, lost to France in that tournament, but they'd beaten England at, um, at home that year. Um, and they were good enough. They were playing in front of a, a crowd which, as Nick says, has got the increased confidence from winning in 2005. Um, and they came really, really close to winning. So this was a, it wasn't a gimme for Ireland by any means. And, and can you talk about the what happened in the dying seconds? Sure. Just, just so Ireland were... They were 6-0 down, two early tries in the second half, putting 14-6 up. Wales then come back to go 15-14 ahead. And then in kind of two, three minutes to go, Ireland get field position. They're pushing for the score to go ahead. Ronan O'Gara, one of the greats of Irish rugby, drops back in the pocket, knocks over a drop goal, 17-15 Ireland. That's not the end of the drama, though. This wasn't a ho-hum 12-point victory like in 2005. Wales then earned a penalty... Uh, around the halfway line, Stephen Jones steps up. He's got a, a big boot on him, and he has kicked pressure penalties in his career. Um, this one was straight. It was a great effort, but it fell just short. And um, I believe it was Jordan Murphy for Ireland collecting the ball under the post, and he had the the time to just check with the ref that, that it was full time. He could kick the ball out. That Ireland had ended the 61-year wait. Um, so he kicked it out, and pandemonium ensured. I think it was a, a good night in Cardiff and probably in Dublin and a lot of other Irish towns as well. Yeah, sounds like a cracking occasion. Alec then, big moment this. I Who's going to clinch it? Kit or Nick, so they both nervous. argued so well throughout the, the three episodes, but well, look, currently one all. 
while they were talking I, I was doing the maths on this one and kit is right that 61 is is higher than 27. so really and <laughs> um well the other thing is that it, it sounds like a very good game it sounds like it was right down to the wire whereas the the Wales match in 2005 feels like a procession, more of like if a. If I just have a right to reply, Ireland versus Wales in 2009 was one of the most boring games for the neutral I've ever seen in my life. It was the quality of rugby in that game was diabolical. But, okay, I accept. It was quite close. having the grand slam by half-time. Well, I wouldn't say it was one by half-time. I mean, you know, you can't underestimate the 2005 Ireland team. I've underestimated them. Well, well yeah, I, I, I don't know. I would just say, I, I would just say, and for the one thing I would add, and, and I didn't probably elaborate on it enough, was to say that the the quality of rugby that Wales were playing in that in that tournament for a team that was uh, nearly swore there, very bad in the two years either side, uh, was just phenomenal, and um, that was what made the occasion. The sun. And the great performance. The sun. We're going back to the lovely weather. They had a whole afternoon and night to party after their great <laughs> Come on, I like your decision. Your decision. What are you going to go for? Well, uh, taking into account what Nick has said, it, it does, it does feel like a, a bit of an oasis in a desert. In that Wales didn't win or, or didn't perform nearly as well uh, either side of the, the the Grand Slam. But I think just because of the strength of the game, I've got to give it to Kit on this one. How do you feel, Kit? You've won 2-1. Honestly, that was almost as tense as, as Wales 15, Ireland 17 in 2009. So still not having very happy to come out on top. Well, I gave Kit the easy games, you know. Uh, that's, that's what you have to do. I'm Ollie Slack, and you've been listening to the Six Nations Rewind with Southwest Londoner, edited by Jack Butler. For coverage of the tournament, make sure to visit swlondoner.co.uk. And until next time.